Father God, thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. Uh, particularly now, we pray that this would be a fruitful time for our family, uh, that we would experience many new births, many beautiful new lives, and a strengthening of the fabric of our faith in Jesus' name. Everybody says, Amen. All right, warm up question. Uh, how many of you saw God this week? How many of you saw God this week? All right, like, it's like maybe eight of us. Good, good. Uh, more important question. How many of you looked for God this week? How many of you looked for God this week? All right, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a fifth of the congregation. Here's what we try to do at uh, a Blue Water, generally speaking, as a body of faith. We feed faith in a culture of follow-through. That's what we try to do. We try to feed, to generate faith in a culture of follow-through because discipleship is, discipleship is, is follow-through. We feed faith through fellowship and sharing. We had some great sharing uh, during the announcement time uh, this morning through Scripture stories and truth discussions by worshiping together uh, as Ben so eloquently put it uh, during our musical worship time, and through encounters with God, giving God space in our midst to do present and supernatural things. Those are ways in which we constantly try to feed faith. Uh, we try to build a culture of follow-through primarily through, through simple structures of involvement, like this service, come as you are, sort of uh, experience together sort of service, maybe even more importantly through our Ohana groups, our small groups that meet during the week. If uh, statistics are reliable, then about 50 or 60 percent of you are involved in weekly Ohana groups. It should be uh, around 100 percent, maybe even 101 percent because we should be gathering new people in. Uh, but places where you get to interact and practice love and ministry uh, on one another. And we try to build a culture of follow-through by focusing on coaching more than teaching. Uh, and the difference is that why teaching might, might reveal new things to you, coaching uh, is a manner of engagement by which we just kind of provoke people to practice what they already know to do, because really that's the secret, isn't it? You don't need to know new things. You need to practice and be faithful to what you do know. But chaos overtakes us in life, and the challenge of life is just sort of maintaining momentum and following through on the stuff that we already know to do, that we already believe is, in point, is important. So the point of all of that is to get you to the life that you want to live, which is way more than getting you to believe what you want to believe. Because belief without living it out is, is, is really not very meaningful or valuable or impactful. So we try to get you to the life that you want to live, and everything we do is designed to get you to engage God and to engage life to lean in and to, here's the most important word, try things in an active way uh, so that you can be changeful and so that you can be meaningful because life, life, living is the goal on earth. Uh, and, and often living is the challenge on earth too. 
It's the thing that throws hurdles in our way, as the Gilbert family shared just a few minutes ago. Uh, question, secondary question. If God gave you exactly what you needed this week, would you notice? It's meant to be a very meaningful question, so you have to think about it. Everybody go, hmm. If God gave you exactly what you needed this week, do you think you would notice? And the answer is, you would notice probably only if you were looking for it. You would notice only if you were leaning in. And I think that's a comment about truth, and it's also a comment about human nature. Uh, Scripture, which I mentioned earlier, I'm kind of a a, a pro-Scripture sort of fellow. Scripture is a bunch of really helpful stories and expressions from the people who lived the life with God uh, back in the day. And one of the most famous stories in Scripture, and, and arguably the most famous story in the world, is the story about the birth of Jesus. We come to celebrate a holiday that we call Christmas, snaps for Christmas. We're getting right up to Christmas, aren't we? Uh, the Christmas story is so good. It's just good. You know, have you read it? It's kind of awesome. Uh, it's got great characters. It's got, it's got opposition. It's got new characters. It's, it's got the whole thing. Uh, it's so layered, you know, and it's, it's so rich. Uh, and so it's just, it's just world famous. People who despise it still know it and use it. It's just that good. And it's a story that God wrote uh, in our midst. The Christmas story, in my experience, never runs out. I've been doing the Christmas story for like all of my life. I've been teaching the Christmas story for like all of my ministry. Uh, the story never runs out. So here's a section of the Christmas story. I bet it is familiar to you. Um, but even if it's not, um, it will probably feel uh, familiar uh, as, uh, as I read it. Uh, a section of the story, I'm going to begin reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, magi, or wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So perhaps you know the setting. There was some sort of strange manifestation in the heavens around the time of the birth of this uh, kid Jesus from Nazareth. And some wise men or some court counselors, some astrologers from the east, probably Persia where Iran is today, see this strange thing that happened in the heavens and, uh, and they go searching uh, for the king of the Jews in, in, the, in Palestine. And, um, and they visit Jerusalem, and they interact with this, uh, this king named Herod, uh, who was the Jewish king that was sort of propped up by the Romans at the time. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him, everybody in the city knew about the, Vagi, uh, the, the visit of the Magi, Uh, this group of guys uh, from Persia. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, all the experts in town, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called back the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He'd missed it. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Yeah, sure, Herod. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, not, not the manger, like the creche scene, that's all wrong. This is like a long time after Jesus' birth. So they arrive at the family home. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Indeed, Herod would eventually try to kill all uh, the newborns in the land of Palestine in order to prevent a new king from rising. Perhaps you know that story as well. So familiar story. Have you guys heard that before? It's the story of the birth of Jesus and the visit uh, of these guys, these, uh, these guys from Persia who came to see, oddly enough, the king of the Jews, a foreign king. Um, my favorite part of the Christmas story. Got a lot of cool stuff in it. Uh, it busts some, some traditions. Like I said, the Magi did not appear on the manger when Jesus was in the trough, you know, with the sheep and the camel. I don't know why there's always a camel there. Um, you know, the star overhead. It didn't happen like that. This happens, you know, at least months after Jesus uh, was born, probably uh, even longer than that. So uh, they, uh, they find Jesus at his family house, which indeed may not be in Bethlehem, no indication that they were there. They may have to wander back toward Nazareth or something like that, uh, which is why Herod needed them to hunt down uh, the, the newborn. Where is he now? What's going on? They succeeded because they investigated. Um, there were uh, almost certainly more than three wise men. I mean, that tradition popped up like years later. Why do we know there are more than three wise men? Because evidently they had a huge entourage, a huge group of people. How do I know this? Because it says they disturbed the entire city when they showed up. So when they showed up, it was like, it was like an international dignitary envoy mission sort of thing. I mean, they showed up to pay homage to a king. And so the court of Persia, you know, had sent like this massive, super impressive group. And when they showed up in Jerusalem to welcome the new king, you can imagine the stir that that caused in the city. Like, what, we're getting a new king? You know, what, what, what exactly is going on here? Jerusalem was in a tough place at the time because they were occupied by the Romans. Things had not been going well politically or, or uh, you know, financially for that matter. Um, they were at a very vulnerable, emotionally charged point. And, and these guys show up and it, it disturbed the entire city. It, it, it created uh, a bit of tumult, 
right? And so three guys sort of cruising in on donkeys uh, would have gone unnoticed, but these guys were anything but. So it was probably a fairly huge deal, actually. Um, a lot of people despise the Christian story and say, well, it seems artificial, it's constructed. And I always, always laugh about that because this is not anything that anybody would have made up. This part of the Christmas story, which is a story about the birth of a Jewish Messiah, essentially kind of insults the Jews and glorifies pagans. Right? These were guys who didn't worship the one true God necessarily. What were they? They were Zoroastrians. Um, right? They're from Persia. They were astrologers. How many of you have heard that astrology is a great way to get to know God? <laughs> Horoscopes? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, yeah. How many live by them? All right. Well, these guys kind of did. They worship the elements. They worship nature, kind of. I mean, even today, Zoroastrianism is a very ill-defined religion. It's sort of a hodgepodge of stuff. But these were guys that just sort of looked for signs of divinity in nature, and they see a strange star. People have researched this. They think there was a supernova visible around that time. And so they saw this strange thing in the heaven, this sort of celestial explosion. And because they were the kind of guys who thought those things portended events on earth, they started investigating. Oh, what does this mean? Hmm. And that sort of eventually sent them on their journey uh, to encounter this, this, this guy who would end up being uh, the newborn Christ. Anyway, they get glorified. And no Jewish person and no Christian person would have added anything to the story to make astrologers look good. And I love it that this is in there because it just kind of proves that nobody's faking and I, I love this stuff about the gospel stories. Uh, little odd, uncomfortable things like this are, are everywhere uh, in the stories. Nobody made this up. Nobody in their right mind would have made it up. And the fact that we sanitized it and made figurines and put them in our crest is just because we don't think about it very hard. Um, we should edit them out. But they actually kind of become the heroes because... They're the guys that find them. Right? They're, they're the guys that went searching uh, for the Messiah. It's my favorite part of the Christian story because, again, it's awkward and nobody would have made it up. But, but also for this reason, uh, the most prophesied event in all of Scripture was the birth of the Messiah. And there's somewhere between 300 and 1,500 prophecies, depending on how you count, about the birth of Christ. The entire nation of Israel had been waiting uh, eagerly, uh, ostensibly, uh, for at least 400 years for the coming uh, of, the, of the Messiah. And when the Messiah showed up, no one caught it. No one realized that it happened. You could count the shepherds in the field, but it took a host of angels to get their butts to the manger, right? No one had the sense to see it when it happened. 
in all of Israel. I love it that in the middle of this story, uh, King Herod convenes every expert in the territory, all the chief priests, all the experts in Scripture. They call them experts in the law. All these guys who knew every prophecy. And, they said, and Herod said, so, you know, guys, tell me about the coming of the Messiah. They knew where he was going to be born. In a minute, I'll tell you why they should have known when he was going to be born. And everybody, every religious person whose life was dedicated to waiting for this event missed it. And the only people who caught it were these pagan astrologers from Persia. And that's meaningful. It's like, wow, I got to figure that out because that's interesting. Things that make you go, come on, Arsenio Hall fans? Anyone? One of the keys to understanding Scripture is, is letting things bug you. And this really bugs me. I mean, how, how would this happen? It, it's like Scripture is mocking faithful people. That's really interesting. And glorifying pagan astrologers. That bugs me. So I love the story uh, for that reason. And I love the wise men as characters uh, because, man, they're good blue water people. They are people who lean into life. They're like a strange star. We must respond. Guys, let's figure this out. And the next thing they know, they're taking a journey of hundreds and hundreds of miles that could have well killed them back in those days. It's like they were triers. They tried stuff. I love these guys. Uh, I want to hang out with them in heaven. I hope they made it. Uh, they were not academics, these wise men. They were triers, definitely. So here's how the wise men pulled it off. Uh, I share this story, this little prophecy, at least every other year around Christmas. Um, these were wise men from the courts of, of Persia, probably, uh, from the east. And uh, a, a famous Jewish person who worked in the courts of Persia was, Bible brownie points, Daniel. Uh, he has one of the, the big prophetic books in the Bible. Uh, he was carried uh, to Persia, well, into Babylon, became a Persia kingdom uh, during the exile of the Jews uh, around uh, a little over 500 years uh, before this time, five or six hundred years. Um, and uh, they, uh, they turned him into a eunuch, eh, and he served uh, successive kings in the Persian courts, and he became a very famous wise man in the courts of Persia, a legendary counselor to kings. And as you know, if you've read uh, Daniel's book in the Bible, he made prophecies. And so while the Persians did not really respect the tradition of the one true God, they didn't sort of follow Jewish customs or anything, they preserved Daniel's writings because Daniel was a legendary wise man in their courts. And in Daniel chapter 9 in that book, there is recorded a very famous prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. It's known as the prophecy of 70 weeks. Uh, and, and what happened was uh, the Magi saw this strange event in the heavens and they said, what does that mean? Let's get to the bottom of this. So they went to their little wise man library and they went through all the scrolls and the books that they had and they found this ancient scroll from this legendary wise man named Daniel. And they read it, and they put two and two together. Actually, the math was more complicated than that, but let me explain. 
Uh, so in Daniel uh, chapter 9, we read the prophecy of 70 weeks. And it goes something like this. I won't read the whole thing. But a, a total of 69 sevens, it says, or 69 units of sevens, or in some of your translations it will say 69 weeks, a total of 69 sevens will pass between the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, is anointed, established in in Jerusalem, until the anointed one comes into the holy city, is what it says. So if you don't follow all the symbolism, what Daniel said was, eventually uh, the king of Persia is going to issue a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem that was destroyed when my people were taken captive. When that decree goes out, you can count 69 sevens or 69 times seven years. Uh, And at the end of that period of time, at the end of those number of years, the anointed one will make an appearance back in Jerusalem, the holy city. That was the prediction. Uh, So the Persian king, we know from history, uh, issued a decree that Jerusalem be rebuilt in 445 B.C., March 15th. 445 B.C. We know quite exactly. Uh, So March 15, 445 B.C. plus 69 sevens, 69 times seven is 483 years. The Jewish Jewish year was 360 days, not 365 days, solar calendar. So that equals 173,880 days. We figure in 119 days for leap year when we uh, convert to our calendar. So March 15, 445 B.C., plus 483 years, comes out to around the first week of April in 32 A.D. Who was alive in 32 A.D.? Jesus, yes. And that was around the time, historians will tell you, that this figure, Jesus of Nazareth, came to Jerusalem. And we read that story when he came in Jerusalem during Passover, remember? And the crowds greeted him with palm fronds, and at the end of that week, he got killed. But he rose again, so it's happy. You know that story? Have you heard that story? Uh, well, it turns out that that week of Passover uh, in, uh, in 32 AD happened the first week of April. The, the prophecy works out with mathematical perfection. And, and the wise men did the math. said, wow, this guy is going to be anointed, or he's going to come into the holy city, he's going to be, you know, crowned in one way, shape, or form, around 32 AD. Uh, When this star happened, it was somewhere around 0 or 1 or 2 AD. And so when they saw this, they read Daniel's prophecy, they thought, I bet that guy was just born. And on that basis, they took off for Palestine. What do you think of that? I'm pretty sure that's the story. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, um, it was sort of a tenuous connection, but, but they were eager, and they set off on an adventure to find him. Daniel 9 says at the end of uh, the period, the anointed one would be cut off, meaning he would be killed, which is, of course, what happened to Jesus less than a week after he came into Jerusalem. Um, and uh, Zoroastrian astrologers may well have known that as well. So they showed up when he was young. They wanted to get him while it was early. Again, none of that could have been faked uh, because Christians who follow Jesus did not write the book of Daniel. And Jews who did write and preserve the book of Daniel 
um, would have never glorified pagan astrologers. The more important question for me, though, isn't why the, why the Magi figured it out or how they figured it out or how they happened to be on the scene when Jesus was born. The more important question for me is why the Jews didn't get it at all, why no one else realized that the Messiah had come. Ostensibly, they were waiting desperately for the coming of the Messiah. They were in the middle, actually, of a nationalistic revival movement, the Pharisees. They were a revival movement. They were trying to rededicate their people to the law, to the ways of God, because things had gotten so bad for the nation of Israel. They were occupied and oppressed by the Romans that they were really trying to get right with God so that God would send the Messiah to kick out the Romans. They were really, really passionate about the Messiah. They were yearning for the promised one to come. And they had all of these prophecies between 300 and 1500 telling them that he would. One reason they missed it uh, probably is that they had unhelpful preconceptions about what the Messiah would be like. They were expecting a military leader to come and to beat up the Romans. I think the other reasons they missed it are probably more human and more universal. Because sometimes when people wait and hope for things a very long time, they lose the ability to do anything except wait and hope. They lose the ability to lean in and to try. Uh, if you've been hoping for some kind of miracle, if you've been hoping for some kind of deliverance, some big change in your life, some bolt from heaven, and time passes, and more time passes, and more time passes, maybe years and years. Well, that kind of waiting does something to you. It seeps into your soul a little bit. And you find that you have to construct a life that somehow works in the midst of disappointment. You have to make a deal with waiting. You have to make a deal uh, with disappointment. It becomes a habit for you, maybe. It becomes who you are in some ways. You become a hoper, a waiter, one who waits. Um, you are someone who lives without having what you hope for. You become uh, a victim, maybe. Maybe you identify with other people who are disappointed. Maybe you identify with other victims and you become a little hooey, supporting each other in your disappointedness so that it's easier to survive. Um, you wait and hope, but you stop expecting. And, and that's the challenge, isn't it? Maybe some of you can, can relate. Theoretically, you want something good to happen, but you no longer look for it to happen. Theoretically, you think you might see God, but you no longer look for God to show up. You no longer make the space. And the risk of all that is, is, is that you stop looking for it, so you might miss it if it shows up. You get it? And I'm, I'm wondering if, if that mentality, if that mindset had not crept in to, to the culture, to the community, to the, to the faith. 
Sometimes you focus so much on being faithful that you forget to have faith. You forget to be expectant. Sometimes you wait so long that that maybe you, you no longer know what you're waiting for exactly in life. You no longer know what would satisfy you in life. It's just, it has ceased to be an important question for you. Uh, maybe you wouldn't know it if you showed up, if it showed up anyway. In any case, uh, in, in the Christmas story, I'm not really surprised that it's the, it's the newcomers <laughs> who catch it right, you know. Um, uh, the newbies from the East, the people who had not really been waiting, but were nonetheless watching, you know, and their attitude made it so that they could see Jesus when he showed. You know, they weren't waiting. They were watching. They weren't merely hoping. Uh, they, they were looking. And, and, it, and it makes sense to me because it reflects the way in which open-minded people almost always find God, in my experience. While jaded people or disappointment, disappointed people often lose God. <laughs> even if they're faithful in some ways. Even religious people, if they're jaded, have a hard time receiving uh, what God offers in life, I have found. Christmas trees. What do you think? Christmas trees? Are we pro-tree? Anybody anti-Christmas tree? Here? Yeah? Because Christmas trees, totally pagan. Am I right? Am I right? I'm totally right on this. Pagan, you know where the Christmas tree comes from? Do you know this? The Christmas tree was incorporated into Christian celebrations of Christmas uh, because it was a symbol used by pagans in their winter solstice celebrations. Yeah, it's a pagan symbol. It doesn't celebrate Christ. It celebrates the solstice. Bah. Dare I say, humbug. Just turn to your neighbor and say, really? Christmas trees are pagan. You heard it here. I have preached it thusly. Christmas trees are as pagan as astrologers from the East. Ick. Oh yeah, I'm preaching it. They're also tremendous symbols of expectancy, as it turns out. I love the way that they've been incorporated into the Christmas story. Because what is the Christmas tree? It's where you put the presents, people. That's what the Christmas tree is. And when the Christmas tree goes up, what do the kids start doing? They start looking. They start looking. And when the thing shows up, even though it's wrapped... They're checking it out. The Christmas tree provokes expectation. And really, I mean, what is more Christmassy than that? It's a celebration that rekindles, that provokes expectation for a bunch of people who have settled into waiting. And there's a big difference between waiting and expectation. I love the Christmas tree. Snaps for the tree. 
when the Christmas tree goes up, the kids fully expect, you know, something uh, to be under there. And, and, and each day, as the time draws near, you know, they, they take a little look. I mean, the, the important question is not like, you know, are you waiting for God? The important question is, are you looking for God? And there's something in that question that I think defines maturity for those of us who, who follow uh, Jesus. Uh, what, you sh- what should you be looking for? right now in life? What should you be looking for? What should you be looking for? Go ahead. Answer that for yourself. I'll wait. What should you be looking for? Not hoping for. Looking for. Leaning in for. Go ahead. Take 60 seconds. Check with God. Be brilliant. Are you guys acing that question or are you having trouble with it? It's always a provocative question for me and there's something about asking myself that question that sort of, it's a nice personal inventory for for what my attitude might be like. Am I still able to look uh, for what I need, for what would satisfy me? A corollary question is what would satisfy you uh, in life? Sometimes that helps tell you what you should be looking for. But there's a corollary to that corollary, which is God tends to give you exactly uh, what you need, exactly what you're looking for in a way that you'd never see coming. Uh, God always does exactly what he says he'll do. But when he does it, you're somehow always surprised. Because he does it in a creative way, in an, in an unexpected way. You have to expect things from God, but you have to expect the unexpected. And God does it that way because it always preserves a little space for faith, right? God is going to give you exactly what you need. God is going to give you exactly what you need to be who you are exactly. But he's going to do it in a way that scrambles your circuits just slightly. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. So you have to look for it. You have to be really open. Really open. Extra open. Or the scrambling might be too much for you. Or you might just miss it when it goes by because you've settled into waiting And you've forgotten what faith is like, even though you're a very faithful person. And our message to the world uh, during Christmas is that, oh, yeah, you know, God gave us exactly what we needed. He just put it in a package we didn't expect. And you might despise it. (laughs) But if you really look, you'll realize that there's something more to this story. And you have to become a seeker and not just a casual thinker if you want to catch God. So in life, are you, are you just waiting or are you expecting? Are, are, you, are, you, are you just believing or are you looking? I mean, Christmas always provokes that, that question. Uh, the, the great thing is that God doesn't really require us to have perfect answers to those questions. <clears throat> he doesn't require us to understand all the predictions or to know exactly what he 
wants us to do, but, but he does require us to be seekers and to be lookers and to watch the heavens uh, and to respond and to try when we think that, that we get an opening. And if God should happen to show up in your life, then you might have to change a lot of stuff. You might have to change your schedule. You might have to go on a journey. We call them blue water journeys. It might be a journey that takes you out into the open, deep ocean, where if God doesn't send a wind, you're stuck. Can I get an amen? Um, might have to change your job. Like, uh, like Robbie did. A response to a prophecy that just didn't quite make sense in the first moment. Um, you might have to ask directions along the way, like the Magi did. And you might have to pay attention to your dreams, which by the end of their journey, the Magi totally did. Because they had learned to rely on God as they went along. And God gives warnings and prompts and challenges and provocations, all with a little mystery, um, but all with an invitation as well. You know, anything could happen. Anything could happen. And my prayer for you this Christmas season is that anything could happen in your life. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that anything would happen. And that we would be the kind of people that anything could happen to. What should we be looking for? Tell us, Lord. How should we be looking for it? Tell us, Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would perfect your agenda for each person. I pray, Lord, that stuff would happen up in here this morning. I pray that you would make us uh, more adventurous people. And I pray that it would be a fruitful season and that our family would grow. We welcome you in Jesus' name. Everybody says, Amen.